Welcome to Vegas Never Sleeps. I'm Stephen Maggi. Starting to get back to normal. Not anywhere near where we were a few months ago, but we are taking steps in the right direction. And barring something unforeseen, sports should soon be back in Las Vegas. As pro sports begin to regain momentum, it's important for the NFL's newest city to learn a little from the sports history. Today, you will hear the story of Chuck Bednarik, not only one of the game's greatest players on both offense and defense, but also a man who defied the odds and lived an incredible life. You'll meet his son-in-law, Ken Safarowick, who will give you an eyewitness account of this man's fantastic story. Later in the show, great news, Scott Robin, your Vegas insider, is back. You'll catch up on how Scott is handling the shutdown of his favorite city. the Raiders start their first season in Las Vegas, Vegas is now officially an NFL city. With that comes the knowledge of history, which is important, not only the history of the Raiders, but really pro football's development as well. Today, we will tell you the story of one of the great personalities of the game, the last two-way player, Chuck Bednarik. With us is his son-in-law, who wrote a great book called Concrete Charlie, an oral history of Philadelphia's greatest football legend. His name is Ken Safarwick. Ken, welcome. I got to say, it had to be something to have that man as your father-in-law. Did you, were you shocked when you first saw him come out of the back? Let's start with the fact that I'm a lifelong football geek. I mean, admittedly, I grew up in New York as a Giants fan, but I was just in awe. I mean, it was a legend coming around the corner, and I knew that. I mean, this wasn't your typical uh, girlfriend's father. This was a legend, and that's what I was thinking. And he was... He was big and gruff, as you would expect, and uh, it was just, you know, hummada, 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 hummada. I don't think uh, I don't think there's any man that I could have been more intimidated by initially, and it was more of a fan than meeting a girlfriend's father. How did you ever meet her, if I can ask? Because that's quite a that's quite a last name there. Uh, here I am. I'm living in New York, and I'm working, and I'm doing some consulting work for a real estate company in Fort Washington, Pennsylvania, which is just outside Philly, and I'm in Yonkers, New York, two hours away. So I'm coming down here a few days a week, and the receptionist kept telling me, you have to meet my sister, you should go out with my sister. And I didn't want to meet her sister, and this went on for a few months, I'm not sure her sister wanted to meet me. But anyway, I was getting tired. I was driving back. There were nights, I mean, I hated it so much. I was driving back and forth to New York and coming back the next day. So I said, I have somebody I can at least have dinner with a couple of times. So um, the receptionist, Donna, brought her sister in, literally shoved her in the door, locked her in the office with me. We started talking, went out for dinner. One thing led to another. And here I am, a New York Giant fan, dating the daughter of Concrete Charlie, Chuck Bednarik. As a New York Giant fan, he must have tortured you in the same way that maybe Johnny Unitas did and that kind of thing. I didn't, it wasn't bad at all. I mean, and I, I slowly crossed over to the dark side. I don't know how it happened, but uh, I started going to some Eagles functions. I became a season ticket holder around 1990, and I don't know how it happened, but you know, I crossed over to Big Green somehow. Uh, they got to me over the years. I don't know if it's Stockholm Syndrome, but uh, I gradually crossed over to become an Eagles fan, and mostly was, of course, tending uh, a lot of functions with Chuck and I almost had no, cho- no choice, and then I guess I came to realize that I was more of a football fan than a uh, parochial follower of any one team. Well, what a career he had, and he's most famous in the same season for two huge hits on two Hall of Famers. Yeah, this is a man, I mean, who had the good time and at his greatest moments came with Hall of Fame players on the other end. Of course, Frank Gifford, the legendary hit. 
Now, he was not, and he always went out of his way to say he was not celebrating the hit itself. What he was celebrating is that essentially ended the game. The Giants were driving for what could be a go-ahead touchdown. And now the Eagles were terrible through the 1950s. They may have had one winning season. The Giants used to kick their tail every year. So here in 1960, they're up in Yankee Stadium, and this this puts them in first place. So he had the famous hit, which I know Steve Sable, among others, from NFL Films, said it's the greatest hit in NFL history. And he took out Frank, of course, who was the golden boy of New York on the 6 o'clock news every night on ads everywhere. Uh, so Chuck dropped him, and he's got that famous pose where he's got his arm up in the air, and it looks like he's doing a dance. But as he always said, the words we saying, this effing game is over, <laughs> is what he was chanting, because he knocked the ball loose. A teammate, Chuck Howley, recovered the fumble. And uh, the Eagles held, held on to uh, take over first place in the East, and then they went on to win their uh, the 1960 championship. And that celebration was sort of almost like the city saying, finally, we got you. So, I mean, he spoke for the entire town. That was it. He, it was for Philadelphia. It was for local bars, the steel mills. That this, The Eagles had finally beaten the New York Giants, who, of course, were the – Gifford was the glamour boy. The Giants were the uh, – glamour team of the NFL in those days in the late 50s and the early 60s. I mean, that's when the NFL was just starting to come into its own as a major national uh, sport, and the Giants were probably the most popular team in football. The magic wasn't over yet, though. Championship game against the Green Bay Packers with Vince Lombardi in his first NFL championship as a head coach. Bart Starr throws a pass to Jim Taylor. Taylor's going into the end zone, and somebody got in the way. Yeah, it looks Jim Taylor looks like he's going to break it. The score is seventeen thirteen. There's something like fifteen seconds left in the game. Taylor is bulldozing his way to the end zone, and number sixty comes out of nowhere, takes him down on the nine yard line at Franklin Field in Philadelphia. And Taylor is, you know, he's trying to get up. He's pushed, trying to push Chuck. And Chuck's literally sitting on him, watching the clock wind down. And over on the wall, it. Uh, Waitman Field, and they had one of those big old-fashioned clocks where the second hand kicks down, and Chuck sat there waiting, watching until the uh, second hand hit zero, 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 and he got up. He said, "Now you can get up now," and uh, <laughs> that's it. So that was yeah, one of, another one of the uh, most famous moments in Philadelphia history: Chuck sitting on Jim Taylor, letting the clock run out. What an electrifying finish to a great season and a great game. Stars up over the ball. This will be it. Stars back to throw. He takes time. He throws over the middle. It's caught at the 15. Running hard to the. Seven-yard line, and down on the seven is Jim Taylor. The game's over. The game's over. The Eagles are the champions of the world. Listen. And Lombardi never forgot it, right? It annoyed him two years later. <laughs> now, well, Jim Taylor, and I ran into him over the years, and he got as big a kick as telling the story as Chuck did. He was really a good sport about it. And then talking to Taylor about it, he said, in 1962, Chuck is now 37 years old. It's his last season. That was the next time the Eagles and the uh, Packers play. And Taylor said, Lombardi said, I'm running at that SO and so at Merrick all day. I've never forget, I haven't forgotten that 1960 game. So Taylor said they ran at him until uh, he just couldn't move anymore. But yeah, that was Lombardi's uh, revenge on Chuck. And then again, I remember reading that uh, Lombardi had the greatest respect that uh, I think was in the David Moranis book, um, When Pride Still Mattered. They, talk, they have a section there where Lombardi talks about we have to stop that Merrick, that he was the guy that he knew they had to defend uh, if they had a chance when they played the Eagles. Well, but Merrick really was kind of the heart and soul of the National Football League. 
really a charmed life, and he grew up in poverty, but boy, did he turn things around, it just kind of working hard, kind of really the all-American story. The life story, I mean, doesn't get better than this. I mean, uh, this is uh, this is the type of thing that you'd read in one of these, uh, you know, Frank Merrill type of books. You know, here is his parents came over from Slovakia to work in the steel mill up in Bethlehem. Chuck grew up uh, basically poor. He said they used to move from one rental house to another. Uh, used to go to uh, family services to get goods. You know, he made his first his first football. His mother made for him. And uh, he used to talk about climbing the fences at Lehigh University to play on grass. And um, he grew up, never left the town of Bethlehem. I mean, the first time he ever left Bethlehem was when he was drafted into the service in 1942 at 17 years old. But uh, he had really never been out of the, uh, at least the Lehigh Valley. And uh, he played a couple of years in high school, had a nice career, but it was nothing like that. So he comes home from World War II. Now, he flew 30 missions over Germany. He was a decorated tail gunner on a B-29. He comes back to uh, Bethlehem, and he's visiting his old high school coach, John Butler. He went to uh, Liberty High School in Bethlehem. And uh, Chuck is about a week away from taking a job with his father in the steel mill. It was all lined up. He goes to visit Coach Butler, and Coach Butler tells him, you're not going to any steel mill, you, uh, you dumb Slovak. You're going down to the University of Pennsylvania to f- play football for George Munger. And I think, I think um, Coach Butler actually drove him down to the University of Pennsylvania. To uh, and The season had already started, and Penn was a national power in those days. I mean, they used to lead the nation in attendance. They'd sell out Franklin Field, crowds of 70,000. Now, this game, this is now 1945. Penn is a couple of games into the season. And all of this guy, this is a story. This is like Joe Hardy. All of a sudden, the biggest, strongest, fastest guy that anybody ever saw shows up on campus. And again, Penn is a major college power. And within a couple of weeks, Chuck is playing. I mean, I talked to some of his teammates, and they said they knew he could he was he could have played any position on the team. Nobody had ever seen anything like it. And um, he was a man among boys too. I mean, he was only twenty. More with Ken Safarowick, author of Concrete Charlie, an oral history of Philadelphia's greatest football legend Chuck Bednarik, in just a moment. To learn more about Chuck Bednarik, check out the Chuck Bednarik Statue Foundation on Facebook. And if you miss an episode of this show, don't worry. It's archived on our website, VegasNeverSleeps.com. You can also hear the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, and more. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. We are talking with Ken Safarowick, author of Concrete Charlie, an oral history of Philadelphia's greatest football legend, Chuck Bednarik. But, you know, he had spent those uh, you know two years and flying 30 missions over Germany. Germany makes you uh, bring a certain hardened presence with you. So within a couple of, by mid-season, he's starting for Penn, and the following year, he's uh, playing both ways and winning all honors. Two-time All-America, three-time All-East. Won the Maxwell Club Award as the best football player in the nation. And the number one draft pick in the Joyce in a really serendipitous turn of events. The uh, defending champion Philadelphia Eagles selected him. Yeah, what luck, right? And, and, and it's part of that very like story is that 
he gets picked by the home team. I mean, what, what a, you know, the best player in the league going to the champions like that. It's incredible. Yeah, I mean, that, that's part of, I think, Chuck living a charmed life is that it's just a legend of Concrete Charlie wouldn't have been the same if he went anywhere, but he spent, you know, four years at Penn, 14 years with the Eagles. I mean, it's 18 years playing football in the city, and no athlete was ever more indelibly linked to a city. When you consider Chuck showed up on the Penn campus in 1945, passed away in 2015, never left the area. Up until the past few months, he was still making appearances, going to dinners, doing signings. So that's 70 years that he was a presence on the Philadelphia sports scene. I mean, I can't think of any athlete who's more associated with a city for a greater length of time. What another stroke of luck was, he actually did something that was kind of shaky at one time. He almost went to the All-American Football Conference to play for Brooklyn, but fortunately he got out of it. Yeah, that's correct. He uh, His senior year was 1948, and the summer before that year, now Branch Rickey is running the Brooklyn Dodgers of the All-America Football League, and it's a real cloak-and-dagger story. He got Chuck on a train at midnight, and I think he actually had him come up to Montreal to sign a contract, and he said, now, you don't tell anybody, because he still had a senior year to play. So that, uh, Chuck had just, he had just gotten married, and uh, he didn't know if he would think he was ever going to make any money playing football. So he signed his all about his contract with the Brooklyn Dodgers, gets back down to Penn, and he's feeling really guilty about it. And he goes to see, um, he's very religious, and uh, his advisor was a priest, uh, I think it was Father Jerry. And I uh, told the whole story, and Father Jerry quietly pulled a, uh, I don't know, pulled a Vito Corleone and got him out of the contract with the Brooklyn Dodgers. So that was a great relief to him, but uh, I guess uh, the I don't know if the, what the statute of limitations are with the NCAA. But if I want to go back 75 years or so, uh, Chuck played uh, <laughs> with a professional contract tucked away. Well, he was a great college player, which a lot of people don't realize. Of course, a great NFL player. He was one of the few that really was one of those that was the first guy picked and really was the best guy out there. Uh, where did he ever get the stamina to play on both sides of the uh, the ball? Now, you got to remember, too, these guys did not even have off-season workout programs. I mean, not only uh, did he work in the off-season, Chuck was working during the season that he uh, would go down, the Eagles would practice in the morning, he'd get up, have breakfast, practice from like 8 to noon, come home, have a sandwich, and then go out and sell concrete in the afternoon. And this is during the season. And the married guys were doing that. So as far as the stamina goes, I don't know if he ever touched a weight in his life. I know he said in college he got strong working for a beer distributor in the offseason, throwing barrels around. But I just don't know where you can explain where that kind of comes from. It's not like he was working out with a personal trainer and uh, his dietician was my mother-in-law, who was a wonderful cook. But uh, he didn't in in those days smoke cigars and cigarettes like everybody did. And I've got to add somewhere where he's doing a... uh, He's doing a commercial. He's got a Chesterfield commercial, a Chesterfield ad. I think he said he got paid uh, like $500 in a carton of cigarettes every week for that. But uh, it's just amazing where he could, uh, at 35 years old, he's still on the uh, 
field for every play. I remember talking to guys like Lenny Moore would say they would just shake their heads. You know, the offense would be coming off, defense, and he'd just be, Chuck would just be standing in the middle of the field while, uh, you know, the teams were shuffling in their platoons. And if you ever see any of the films of him that you can on YouTube and the old NFL films and so forth, He's so quick to the ball. I mean, he just, Madden used to say it was linebacker eyes, but he really was the kind of prototype for the great middle linebackers. Yeah, I mean, people would ask him, Chuck, what do you, what do, you do? What do, you, what do you do? What do you read? I just go to the ball. That was uh, what he did. He just had remarkable instincts that um, even uh, like 1960, he hadn't played defense in a year or two, and because of injuries, he had to go back to playing a linebacker. And, he picked it right up. He had all the instincts. And then here, the 1960 championship game, he not only uh, was on the field for every play, but he led the team. He made 12 tackles, recovered the, recovered a fumble, and had that uh, famous drop Jim Taylor on the last play of the game. So not only did he understand the game, I mean, he was great on both sides, a great player, but also he got the idea of the media. I mean, he was ahead of his time. I know you had said once that, he might have been John Madden before John Madden got there because he just got it. He got it, and I remember maybe the best uh, spokesman, Steve Sable, said he loved them, that he understood, Chuck understood that they were in the entertainment business, and he could spin a story. Sable said his all-time favorite interview was, oh, the NFL films used to be down uh, in Center City, Philadelphia, before they moved to New Jersey, so they brought Chuck down for an interview. There was some camera problem, so they went out for lunch, which turned out to be an extended liquid lunch. So Chuck comes back with a few martinis, and, um, and they were asking him, and it's a classic, I, you just kind of want to hit somebody, and he's just about frothing, and he's <laughs> got his fist up in the air, and well, they loved it. He said it was the best interview that Chuck understood were in the entertainment business, and uh, he did it without being a, uh, a gaudy showman, just with, you know, with personality. And you get into that sort of a cannibalistic feeling. All you want to do is go out there and, like I say, you just want to kill somebody. When I get him, I'm going to kill him. Not mean you are, you're going to put him in the ground after, but you just want to kill a guy, boy. You, you, you actually froth from the mouth and you're going to really put it to him. More in a moment from the author of Concrete Charlie, Ken Safarowick. To learn more about Chuck Bednarik, check out the Chuck Bednarik Statue Foundation on Facebook. Don't forget, you should follow this show on all social media platforms, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. With us today is Ken Safarwick, author of Concrete Charlie, an oral history of Philadelphia's greatest football legend, Chuck Bednarik. Yeah, another story I'd like you to tell is the one he did on the uh, kind of rubber chicken tour with Frank Gifford. And, and of course, we talked about that hit with Gifford. Kind of tell him how he uh, he introduced himself for those uh, talks. Well, yeah, and having said, Frank was really a good sport about it. That I'm sure it was, his, in fact, it was about his least favorite topic. I mean, he could walk down Madison Avenue and somebody would want to talk to him about the uh, – 
that never kit. Of course, Howard Cosell kept it alive in the 1960s. Game could be or 70s games getting boring. You know, there'd be a big hit, and you know, Cosell would go for, "Hey, Frank, does that remind you what Chuckaroop and Eric did to you when there was a big hit on the field?" But anyway, Frank uh, Chuck, it was a testimonial for dinner for Frank Gifford in New Jersey, and they invited Chuck. And Chuck's got a good sense of uh, showmanship. And he uh, doesn't tell anybody, but he goes up to the uh, guy who's in charge of the uh, lights for the uh, for the ballroom, and he says, "Don't say anything." But they introduce me, just shut out all, shut off all the lights, so the place is completely dark. So they call Chuck up to the uh, dais, and the house goes completely dark. A couple of seconds, everybody's wondering what's going on, and Chuck says, "Look familiar, Frank," <laughs> and the house. Or, of course, they tell me Kathy Lee didn't appreciate it, but, uh, you know, Frank, he got it, and Frank got a kick out of that, too. He had kind of a, a personality for such a hard hitter and one of the toughest guys ever to play. It seems like everybody kind of liked him. I mean, you talk to the old NFL players, and I know when you wrote the book, Concrete Charlie, you talked to a ton. They all not only respected him, but it seems like they liked him. And everybody had a Chuck Bednarik story. I think especially his teammates really revered him. He was incapable of high-hatting or being arrogant with anybody. I don't think he fully, you know, coming from the background, a uh, you know, a steel town kid during the Depression, I think he had a hard time grasping that people really idolized him and uh, the respect and the awe that he had. And he always had time for everybody. I mean, it was no nonsense with this, the player. They talk about how tough he was during practice. But, uh, in fact, one famous story, there was a, uh, he had a teammate, a guy named Jess Phillips, who was fooling around during warm-ups, and Chuck walked over to him and cold-cocked him with one shot. He said, you don't fool around like this during practice. And I heard that from several teammates that he knocked, uh, just Richardson, just Richardson, he knocked him out with one shot because he was fooling around during warm-up. So that's the uh, the kind of team that he was. But uh, everybody would go to reunions afterward, and he was the uh, he was the center of attention everywhere he went. And as far as he was fundamentally incapable of turning down an autograph request, I mean, he would go out if somebody was lurking in the background, he would go over and sign it and. Uh, he was great with everybody, the fans, uh, you know, asking, talking to kids, uh, asking, you know, asking questions back. Yeah, he even uh, played a joke on some kids huh, with, with those hands of his, which are famous. Uh, I, I don't know how many kids he sent into therapy over the years. He had those famous, probably the most famous set of fingers in the uh, annals of American sport, starting with, you know, the one pinky that pointed out at a 90-degree angle. He'd go up, he'd shake the kid's hand, and then he'd say, ouch. Hey, break this grip and say, look what you did to me with the finger pointing out, the, the shock and the awe in the faces of those kids that, uh, well, look, you broke my hand. But I tell you, for, for fingers that went in every direction, he was a scratch golfer. In fact, was the club champ. He didn't start playing golf till after he retired. Within like five years, he was a champ at one of the major country clubs in Philadelphia. He could play any musical instrument, and he played the accordion, he played keyboards, harmonica, and he did it all by ear. I mean, he just never, uh, those fingers didn't stop him from doing anything. That is incredible when you think about it, and really a natural athlete. Now, I know he had kind of a little running gag with uh, Deion Sanders in the sense that Sanders was the other guy that could play both sides of the uh 
the ball, DB and wide receiver, but he didn't take it the same way what he did, right? No, the easiest way to get Chuck riled up is, Chuck, you're not the last two-way man anymore. The hell I'm not. Deion Sanders couldn't tackle my wife, Emma. Don't call him a two-way player. So, yeah, number two wide receiver in D-back. You see a little less action than you do at center and linebacker. Now, he was in the Hall of Fame, of course. Was that his biggest moment, or was his biggest moment in 1960 winning that championship? Well, the biggest moment on the field was winning the championship. Uh, I'll I, I tell you, it's crazy. The one thing when people would ask what your greatest sports achievement was, he was saying winning that club championship playing <laughs> golf after five years. But, uh, yeah, I mean, he's in the College Hall of Fame. I mean, maybe the best testament testimonial to his two-way greatness is that since uh, January of this year, ESPN announced the greatest college football team of all time, encompassing 150 years of college football. And Charles P. Bednarik of the University of Pennsylvania was picked as the first team center on that. So ESPN picked him as the greatest collegiate center of all time. And then uh, this year, too, the NFL, in honor of its 100th anniversary, picked uh, their all-time team. And Chuck was one of the linebackers selected on that. So I'm sure he's the only guy selected to both of those teams on different sides of the ball. Now, you helped Chuck a lot post-retirement as he got older. You know, time gets – he lived a long time, but as time will do, and especially all the hits you take, it becomes harder and harder, and you were a help to him. But you said you didn't mind doing that at all. In fact, it were great moments just kind of hanging with him. Are you kidding? I mean, as a football geek, all the people that I met, I mean, it was truly a labor of love. You know, whether it was a, a University of Pennsylvania thing, an Eagles thing, it's just being part and seeing the way people came up and acted to them. And, uh, I mean, I met so many great people doing that. I mean, I just uh, I have no regrets about that, that for the last 10 years or so, I was his primary traveling companion, and it was just a wonderful experience. Made a lot of good friends that I still stay in contact through with that and just got to stand back take a few steps back and watch uh, the world react. You know, guys coming up, introducing their sons, their grandsons. This is Chuck Bettnerick, people that he played with, guys of his age that uh, I just don't know of any Philadelphia athlete that had that big of an impact on people. Finally, there was one bit of controversy at the end of his career, well, not the end of his, almost his retirement, really, and that was uh, he got into a beef with the Eagles, and he actually rooted for the Patriots in the Super Bowl back in 2005, but then he said he apologized, or I read that he apologized for it. What happened? Well, he did. Well, first off, 2005, the early stage, you know, dementia was starting to settle in. I mean, there's no, he was enrolled in the 88 program in the NFL for the players with, with head injuries. And uh, he was upset, and he did, he made some intemperate remarks about the Eagles over the time, and he deeply, deeply regretted it afterward. And uh, there was a few years when he was estranged from the team. But I got to say, Andy Reid was wonderful. Andy Reid got it, and uh, he never completely turned his back on Chuck. And even the Eagles and Jeffrey Laurie were magnanimous. I mean, I think they understood. We kind of, uh, you know, brokered a piece, got him back in, saw any didn't miss any Eagles functions after that. But that was um, Chuck being Chuck. I mean, in a lot of ways, for as tough as he was, he was a sensitive person. Yeah, always quick with a comment, and that was it. So it was, um, 
look, we were all pleased that he, uh, it would have been a real tragedy if he passed and strange from the Eagles and, uh, Ray Dittinger, a popular sports writer in Philadelphia, helped broker a piece, and we, everybody agreed that Chuck, it just would have been horrible, and the Eagles were wonderful uh, for him in the last few years, and uh, did a great job of honoring him when he passed, so uh, really, really one of the uh, most grateful moments of my life is that we helped, that uh, Chuck did not... Uh, wasn't wasn't estranged from the Eagles' nest when he passed. He was back in the good graces, and he got the uh, treatment that he deserved as a franchise icon. It's really a happy ending to a great story. And if you want to read that, you go to Amazon. You can get it there. I got my copy coming. Concrete Charlie, an oral history of Philadelphia's greatest football legend, Chuck Bednarik. And it's just an incredible story that if you like football but you don't know about it, Spend a little time. It, it, it's a great read. It's fun. And even if you don't like football, he's interesting enough where you can find something that'll that'll interest you. Oh, thanks, Steve. It was a pleasure. Again, nothing I enjoy more than talking football. If you want to learn more about Chuck Bednarik, check out the Chuck Bednarik Statue Foundation on Facebook. Also, just look him up on YouTube. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. You are listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. We've missed talking to Scott Robin, our Vegas insider. It's been awful with all the restrictions and so forth. We got him back. We're not quite open yet, but we're getting there soon. First of all, Scott, what have you been doing? Because with you not all over town, uh, Vegas just isn't the same. Well, it's true. Uh, I consider it kind of Vegas is on a break, you know, taking a little day off. Uh, we're having a moment, as, as the kids say. Uh, yeah, it's been very interesting. You know, my whole life is wrapped up, uh, for better or worse, in restaurants and shows and gambling and drinking and carousing. And we've that has just come to a halt. Um, it's been tough uh, in Vegas specifically because there's so many people, so many friends, so many businesses uh these folks are really suffering, and, and it may not seem like a long period of time, you know, a couple of months, uh, but when you're not getting a paycheck for a lot of these folks, it's it really is kind of paycheck to paycheck. You're in the service industry, sometimes you don't make a lot of money. So that's been tough to watch. Uh, it's also just been extraordinarily boring for me uh, because I'm still tweeting and blogging and podcasting to only talk about one thing. Like, this has so consumed the conversation uh, there's a, amazing things still going on. There's amazing things planned, uh, but this has really derailed all that. Uh, but I, I think, uh, you know, I did a tweet the other day that said, you know, replace new normal with new temporary, because I think a lot of these changes are going to be temporary, thankfully. Boy, I sure hope you're right about that. And, you know, when you talk about restaurants, especially in entertainment venues, they're like last on the list to come back. You think, though, people that head out to Vegas are going to be willing to take a little more risk, that maybe they'll be willing to get on a plane and, and actually sit at a, a sporting event or at an entertainment show or uh, or sit in a restaurant and not be so uh, caught up with possibilities of of awfulness? Yeah, well, I don't think that the bigger group uh, kind of entertainment venue thing is 
is really in the mix right now. I, I kind of like this phased approach because uh, as of May 9, uh, restaurant dining at restaurants is back on. So I, I think uh, a lot of that will not be happening, say, on the Strip or in casinos. But that's a really big step because I think part of this is everybody just has to rebuild a certain confidence and comfort level and a feeling of being safe uh, so that there isn't that feeling that you're risking anything. Uh, any more than any other risk in life. You know, this this has taken kind of center stage, and it feels disproportionately scary. But you know what? Life is a little scary. Uh, I think uh, all these places have guidelines now where they're mitigating uh, the risk even more than I really feel is necessary. I'm a little more extreme on the side of, hey, uh, you know, I, I take chances every day. I get in my car. I go on elevators. I go on planes. You know, there's things right. that could happen. Uh, but I think uh, restaurants coming back to any degree is really going to be a big deal. Uh, at, uh, it's going to be 50% capacity, which is really tough uh, for some of these restaurants. I do not know if they're they're going to be profitable, but I honestly, I'm not really sure they care. I think they just want to get, get in touch with their customer base again. They want to get their staff uh, back in so they can get up to speed again. Uh, I think restaurants was a, was a really big step, even though casinos aren't, aren't opening yet. I think restaurants, uh, that's a really big step. And it's a real opportunity for people when they're headed out to these restaurants that are open, that have the guts to do it, and people are working there. Maybe this is a time where you tip a little bit more than usual. It just it, It's so difficult. It's so great that people are willing to take a chance and go back. Let's kind of reward it. Yeah, and I I think uh, I, I think just it won't take very long for people to realize that this is not – uh, this is not really all that risky. This is not, uh, you know, you're not tight, walking a tightrope over, over a pond of crocodiles. That, that's just not what it is. You want to take reasonable care. And those folks do, they deserve our generous tips all the time. Uh, but it's like the folks that have been at the grocery stores and the big box stores. It, you know, it's not the plague. They're, they're interacting with thousands of people every day. And it's we're generally fine, so I think this is going to be the next evolution. But yeah, I always, you know, I always say take care of those servers, and especially now uh, because many of them have been out of work for months, and many will remain out of work for uh, months more. Uh, but I think it's, you know, I think the the thing that will come out of this for a lot of people is just this renewed appreciation for the things we took for granted, uh, and th- that's especially true. In Vegas, you know, I would always harp on these little kind of nitpicky things, and I would criticize shows. I would love to see Chris Angel right now. <laughs> I'm not a fan of Chris Angel, but I'd do anything to go to a theater and watch Chris Angel. I would do anything to pay a CNF charge or a resort fee. I would do anything just to have some semblance of normalcy. And we'll get back to complaining about those nuisances later, parking fees and all that. Uh, soon, but for now, it would be great to just have any any sense that Vegas is still Vegas and that the casino world especially is starting to get back on its feet. Thanks, Scott. Scott will be back again next week. And thank you for listening today. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. This is Stephen Maggi, who are reminding you very, very soon that Vegas never sleeps.